We'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We'll continue in our study of Paul's second prayer here in the book of Ephesians. And we've titled this little series, Imploring the God Who Hears. How do we talk to God? Because we're confident that He not only invites us to talk to Him, but He hears what we're saying to Him. Imploring the God who hears. Today, we're going to be praying for the experience of God's love, or literally Christ's love. This prayer is found in Ephesians chapter 3, and it extends from verse 14 all the way through verse 21. So let me just read that for us, just to freshen it up in your mind. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When Kim and I got married, I noticed something immediate when we returned from our honeymoon and began living together. A little background, I had had a series of roommates, I can't remember, probably 25 or 30 roommates since college. They were all guys, and we had lived in guys' apartments and guys' dorms and houses that were rented out by people, and it was all guys. But I noticed that the presence of my wife made an immediate and dramatic difference in my living It was incredibly different and wonderful. Don't don't hear me wrong. It was more wonderful than it was different, but it was different. Our little one-bedroom apartment in Burbank was tastefully decorated. I didn't know what decorations were. There were pictures on the wall. Coasters on the tables, which I learned to use, by the way. Flowers and vases. Vases. <laughs> and probably the greatest shock, which still, I'm going to try to not receive much counseling from this today, but there were, there were extra pillows on our bed <laughs> that, that I never used when I slept, nor, nor do I still ever use when, when, when I sleep. In fact, these pillows... 
Don't even stay on the bed all night. But the, anyway, um, also our, our little home, our little apartment was perpetually tidy and, and clean. And I learned how I needed to be tidy and clean. It was very different living with her than dating her. Made a big difference. At the beginning of verse 17 in Ephesians 3, Paul prayed, quote, that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. Just as it would have been utterly impossible to live with my precious wife without there being a dramatic impact in how I lived, Paul is saying, if Christ dwells in your heart through faith, a difference is made. And he prays for that difference. Jesus is far too powerful, far too awesome, far too holy, far too special to live in a person's heart through faith without his presence being a known commodity in a most profound way. As we studied last time, Paul prays for Christ's presence to reside in our hearts through faith. We're in an extended study of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3. It's taking us a few weeks to work through this prayer, and it'll take us at least one more. I know it's taken us a little bit of time to work through this text, but it might give you some perspective to know that the great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through this passage, through this, this, this uh, prayer, and it took him 17 sermons. So I don't feel that bad, and I don't think it's going to take us that long. As we've noted many, many times before, prayer is a learned behavior. You learn how to pray. That means that we learn to pray by listening to others pray. That's how we first learn to talk to God, by how others talk to God. Those examples are in our friends. They're, they're likely some of your parents or your uh, friends in the church that you were around, and they prayed, and you kind of learned how to pray and how to talk to God. That's okay, but I want to argue for the fact that we can learn to pray best by reading the prayers and praying in the Bible. No question that the most effective and the best way to learn how to pray is to study the prayers that are in the Bible. And that's why we're taking our time in this prayer that Paul utters at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Again, it's his second prayer in the book. The first one was in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and now the second one in chapter 3, verse 21, 15, excuse me, 14 through 21. As we look at this prayer, just back up for a second before we get into the, into the weeds of it. He's really looking at two overarching um, requests that he's making to God with a lot of sub points underneath that. The first is that God would provide his strength, his power through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the inner man, in our hearts, those are the two verses, two phrases used in verse 16 and 17, inner man and hearts, that God would, would touch us, would bless us with power there so we would live differently. How? Well, the second part of that is that the power of the Spirit would come in our hearts, in our inner man, in our mission control central, in the real us and we would be able, because the power of the Spirit resides in us, to grasp more so the dimensions of Jesus Christ's love to us and for us. Now, Paul is, if you read and study his, his, 
his uh, prayers, he's perpetually asking for God's power. In Ephesians 1, verse 16, you remember this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will help you know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is, listen, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So even from the very beginning, Paul is praying that we are empowered, we're enlivened, we're motivated, we're moved along by the power, this divine, the power of the Holy Spirit that he grants to us. He's asking specifically that this power touches us and motivates us in the inner man or in the heart, as verse 17 says. There's a contrast made here that needs to be observed but not made too much of. Uh, This is not one of my favorite words, but we are truly holistic people. Now, I think people can go too much with that, but I, I do have a body and I do have a soul. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, literally it's rotting. How's that for getting old? Yet our inner man, our heart, our soul is being renewed day by day. I, I remember people talking about this when I was young and saying, yeah, it's for old people. And I, I, I never planned on, on getting old. I really didn't. I thought somehow I could avoid that part of life, and, and, and I didn't, and I haven't. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of the glory that's beyond comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, that's the outer man, but the things that are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, that's our physical experience, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now we will get new bodies, the glorified bodies in heaven. But Paul says, there needs to be an observation. You, we need to understand that there, there's part of us that's dying, that's decaying, that's, that's, that's rotting, literally, that, that, that's getting old and older and the body's wearing out. He calls it a tent, a temporary tent, not our final home. But there's a part of us, the inner man, the heart, the soul, that's being renewed day by day. I think this means taking Paul's words kind of in a summary fashion, that we live life in between the world of earth and heaven. Don Carson calls this living, quote, as if we have one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth. This prayer, however, Paul gives attention to the inner man. Now, we've said this over and over. We we take all of our prayers to God. In Philippians chapter 4, we pray for everything, prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, take our request to God. And there's nothing wrong with praying for physical realities. If I'm sick, if I'm going into surgery, I, I, I would ask you and want you to, to pray for me, please. Pray for, for, for physical, uh, uh, corporeal realities. Paul prayed for uh, at least two people in the New Testament who were sick. Nothing wrong with praying for, for external things. That's not the problem. 
The problem is when our prayers are consumed by only the outer man and not focused on the inner, on the soul, on on the real us, the, the eternal soul. Do you know how to pray for people's souls? We've been on an extended study in our Sunday school on soul care. Does that generate a different prayer list for people than just the physical? Let me say again, please don't ever stop praying for physical needs and physical realities. But do we add to that prayer for the inner Man, prayer for the heart and prayer for the soul. That's the focus here in Ephesians chapter 3. If Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith, as verse 17 says, Paul's praying for it, then his presence is something we will know and experience, and it will have an impact on our inner and outer man. But Paul understands that all behavior external is generated from the heart, from the decisions that we make. So he goes straight after that in his prayer. So I'm going to break this part of prayers, Paul's prayer down and see three prayer requests that he gives. Three prayer requests for experiencing Christ's abiding presence. We just learned last time that he dwells in our hearts through faith. How can we experience that? How can we enjoy that? How can we leverage that for his glory and for our good? Paul gives us three prayer requests for experiencing Christ's abiding Presence. Now, that abiding presence, just to give you some context, comes out of verse 17 in the very beginning. He prays for strength through his spirit in the inner man, verse 16, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he goes on to explain how that can be applied by asking God to impact Christ's presence in the lives of the believers there at Ephesus. The first is in the second half of verse 17. The first prayer request for experiencing Christ's abiding presence is this, to be stabilized by Christ's love. To be stabilized by Christ's love. He says that we, he wants us, he's asking God that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that you, the ones he's praying for, verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love. Two word pictures in two words. Paul paints a very simple word picture with these two words, one from agriculture and one from architecture. The first is agricultural, that you'd be rooted. It speaks of a tree with deep roots that, that keep the tree or the plant firmly upright, firmly stabilized, and definitely alive. Rooted. And grounded, he says, this is an architectural term, and it talks of, about a, a, a building's foundation, flat, level. It's an architectural term. Solid and firm foundation on which you can build your structure, or here, build your life. You put those together with the idea of being rooted and being grounded, the agricultural, the architectural metaphors, and the idea is that of being stable, being stable. You know, I, I really think as I look at my own life, as I, as I continue to, to shepherd people in, in, in the church, I think stabilizing one's life is probably the, the subterranean goal that, that flows through everything we really want. We want, we want to be stable. We, we need to be stable. We're knocked off balance and 
unrooted and ungrounded so easily. So how can we be rooted and and grounded? How can we be stabilized? We'll look at the last part of the phrase. Rooted and grounded in love. Now, just just a little fun. Uh, So I, I read, I don't know, a couple dozen commentaries on this over the last two weeks. And there's so much debate about what this could be. Is it God's love for us? Is it God's love through Christ for us? Is it Christ's love for us that's different than the Father's? Is it our love for Christ? Is it our love for God? Is it our love for others? Is it others' love for us? Is it our love for enemies or is it our love for our friends and the body? How, what is this love? Well, as we say over and over, the best way to determine what a text means is to look at the context. Look down at verse 19. The love of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Christ's love for us, which then makes sense. Christ's love for us is what roots us and grounds us. My love for anyone doesn't root or ground anything. What keeps us stable is Christ's love that's in picture here when you draw back and see the whole context. What is this love, this love of Christ? I think this is our love from Christ, not our love to Christ. There there are other passages about our love to Christ. I think this is about God's love to us through Christ, which is Christ's love for us as well. Dane Ortland says this, the love of Christ is his settled, unflappable heart of affection for sinners and for sufferers and only sinners and sufferers. I think he's right. God's love demonstrated to us and for us in his son is the is the spine on which all of the the body is structured in the New Testament theology of God's care for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But in order to understand that this love, and this love is wonderfully um, intricate, complicated, but simple at the same time, in that we love God because God loves us and our love for God is because of Christ and that makes us love the brethren and love others and we, if we don't have that love, we have a problem. So to understand all that in better words than I can use, turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you've worked with the children, you know the song. <laughs> it's hard for me to read this without hearing the song, um, but I'll try not to sing. First John chapter seven, four, chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for, do you hear the song? For love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is what? Love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. How? 
that God, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sins, beloved. If God so loved us, we ought also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know what that's saying? No one sees God, but if you love like God loves, they see a vision of God's reality. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What a great verse. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. You see the parallels here? We've come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God's second time in just a few verses. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected, matured with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. How are we like him? By loving. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he or she is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There's a lot in there. The thing I want you to see clearly is that God is love, but that his being love has impact on how he loves us. His being love impacts how we love him. And his being love also shows us how we love others. It's all related, as we'll see, because we come right out of chapter 3 and we go into uh, loving one another in tolerance for one another in love in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, because we imitate God, we walk in love in chapter, in verse 2. It's, it's all related. Loving God, the love of God, rather, to us in Christ stabilizes our soul. You, you say, how does knowing that Christ loves me stabilize my soul? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that brings us to the second prayer request that Paul utters here. The second of three prayer requests for experiencing Christ's abiding presence. Number one, to be stabilized by Christ's love. How do you do that? Number two, to be fixated with Christ's love. I, I almost put the word obsessed, which is an equal word, to be obsessed with Christ's love, consumed by Christ's love, to know Christ's love, to be fixated with it. Verse 18, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love and that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, full disclosure, I, I, am, I, I am out over my skis. I'm in the deep end of the pool. I'm over my head. You, you pick the metaphor you want. I, 
we're about to go where I don't have the language to even express and explain. I love Frederick Lehman's lyrics in one of my favorite hymns, who um, Bill Gaither said is probably outside of Holy Scripture, probably the best words ever penned. He says this in his wonderful hymn, The Love of God. Now just think about it. Beautiful song, beautiful melody. Think about the words. He asks, could we with ink the ocean fill? You got an ocean full of ink. And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? Every blade of grass was something to write with. And every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That grasps these two verses we're about to dive into. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Paul parallels two requests. He says, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend, and in verse 19, that you may be able to know. Know what? The love of Christ. So that makes comprehending and knowing all about comprehending and knowing the love that comes from Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that has breadth and length and height and depth. They're the same thing. Knowing and comprehending are are, are, are trying to communicate the same passionate desire and truth to understand and know better Christ's love for us. Harold Honer helps us again here. He says, the spatial dimensions fit well. Remember our agricultural and architectural words grounded and rooted? The spatial dimensions fit well and figure into verse 17 when they refer to the love which believers are rooted and grounded. Ultimately, this love is the love of Christ as Paul develops in this passage. Then he quotes another commentator. Abbott has expressed it well when he writes, I love this. The four words seem to indicate height, depth, length, breadth. The four words seem to indicate not so much thoroughness of the comprehension as vastness of the thing to be comprehended. Paul's not trying to be scientific here. I, I know we can argue for three dimensions, and if you know Einstein or know about Einstein, you would argue for a fourth. I, that's not what he's doing here. He's just saying, listen, I want you to know the love of Christ that is higher than you can imagine, that's lower than you can dig, that's further east and west than you can ever touch. It's massive. I think it's similar to what we find in the book of Job. Zophar asked Job in Job 11, verse 7, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Up, down, right, and left, there is no way to exhaust it. He says, I want you to be able to comprehend 
what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth. The massiveness of the love of Christ that you can never exhaust. Imagine this. Kids, see if this makes any sense. Imagine that you're in Los Angeles and you go to the beach with a sewing thimble. A sewing thimble, okay? And you take this thimble and you go out to the ocean and the water's coming up and you, you dip down and you get a thimble full of salt water. And then you walk all the way across to Florida and you dump that thimble in the Atlantic Ocean. And your goal is to take all of the water in the Pacific and dump it in the Atlantic. You say, that's silly. That's silly here. Height, depth, breadth, length. You cannot exhaust the love of Christ. That is what he's trying to say. Remember, we're in the middle of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and he prays in verse 16 that they and we would be strengthened with power in our inner man. We should make note that the apostle is not praying, by the way, that we perform miracles because of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. He's not praying that we're able to heal the sick. He's not praying that we have evangelistic revivals. He's not praying that we can walk on water or know the future. He is praying that the entire load of the power of God impacts us by being overwhelmed that Christ loves us. <laughs> of all that we could use the power of God for, Paul says, I want it to be inaugurated in your heart to empower you to be amazed at Christ's love. To be overwhelmed by Christ's love that you comprehend its height and depth and length and breadth. In order to understand, by the way, this part of Paul's prayer, you have to, you have to come to a Humbling conclusion. Christians do not adequately understand the love of Christ or Paul would not pray for it. You understand that? He's praying that we would be able to comprehend and know the love of Christ better because we don't know it well enough. Is that an admission that you can make, that you will make, that we are negligent that we are deficient in our comprehension, in our knowledge of Christ's love for us. Consequently, Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus to have the power to take a greater hold on the love of Christ than they currently have. You say, what do you mean the love of Christ? Don Carson helps us. He says, this is not a prayer that we might love Christ more, though that's a good thing to pray for. Rather, it is a prayer that we might grasp better His love for us. And did you notice that this is a prayer to know what can, cannot be known? Did you read the verse? You might comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height, length and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Wait a minute, Paul. You want to say you can't have it both ways. You're telling me to know what cannot be known. No, he's telling you to know what you cannot exhaust with your brain. 
you're never going to finish. I, I would argue that we are going to study and love and appreciate and grow in our knowledge of the love of Christ through all eternity. It means that the love of Christ is beyond mere knowledge. Can I say this? It's experiential. I, I know that in cessationistic churches like our like ours, we, we are afraid of the word experience. That's what Paul's praying for, that you would comprehend and know you would experience that God through Christ and in Christ loves, loves you. It means that we know about Christ's love and that causes us to feel and trust the limitless dimensions of such love. In short, Paul is praying for them, and I think for us, we can pray for each other, that the believer would have a divine empowerment, a divine enablement to, love, to have a firm grasp on the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. It, it means to be overwhelmed, but to enjoy, enjoy being overwhelmed. Again, the word love here is agape, it means it's a love that seeks the highest good in the one that is beloved. Jesus sought the highest good for us because he loved us. Hey, Paul will come back to this, this exact word. Look across the page or turn the page to Ephesians 5. I mentioned this a moment ago. This is incredible. This reminds us of what John says in 1 John. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, how do I do that? First practical application, walk in love. You say, well, where do we get that idea? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he's going to tell us here and in Later in Ephesians 5, we, we need to love like God, which means we know how God loves. How did God love us in Christ's love for us in his offering of himself and his death? Ephesians, look down the page. Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her. Why? For consequences, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Listen, just as John 3.16 highlights, Paul points to the precious reality that Christ's love, as the Father's love, is a love of giving. And we're to be consumed. If we're an answer to Paul's prayer, we are to be consumed and obsessed and fixated with his love for us. It's more amazing of what Jesus himself said about his love for us. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide then in my love. So... How does Jesus love us? What should we grow in our understanding of? The Father loved Jesus and he loves 
us like that. This is an inner Trinitarian care and affection and love. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the king and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. There it is. We see and fixate most on the love of Christ by seeing the cross and what he did for us. John 3.16 is more than a placard at an NFL game. I love 2 Corinthians 5.14, which Paul also wrote. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. That's a big statement, which makes sense if he believes that the love of Christ controls us, why he would ask that we can comprehend and know the love of Christ better. I'm amazed and encouraged that Paul packs this principle with a how-to. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you've been looking at this verse and saying, you skipped a phrase. And I did. You'll be able to comprehend and know height, depth, breadth, width. To know the unknowable, the unsearchable. How? Look at the little phrase in verse 19. With all, excuse me, verse 18, with all the saints. With all the saints. We can't, nor are we expected to do this by ourselves. We are to be comprehenders and knowers and worshipers of Jesus' love for us with each other. What does that mean? It means exploring the love of Christ means exploring alongside other believers, other saints. Learning the love of Christ is learned alongside other believers. Studying the love of Christ is studying alongside other believers, being amazed by the love of Christ, being overwhelmed with the love of Christ means being amazed and overwhelmed with the saints, with other believers. Church is important. Membership is important. Care groups are important. Involvement is important. Attendance is important. We learn the multidimensional, multi-practical, all-satisfying love of God through Christ. Not in a vacuum. We learn it alongside the saints. We do this together. And we'll have far more to say about this love of Christ as we move through the last three chapters of Ephesians. The third prayer request Paul gives, to be stabilized by Christ's love, to be fixated with Christ's love, and this is almost too much, to be satisfied by Christ's love, to be satisfied by Christ's love. That you, end of verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the filled upness, all the fullness of God. 
you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. What is this request of Paul to be filled up to all the fullness of God? Back to our friend Dane Ortland, who says this about this, this phrase. And when I read this, I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I read this and I thought, I, said, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. And so I kind of had an argument with him in my mind for a few minutes. And then that led to the afternoon of thinking about it. And then I came back and read it again. And I said, I, th- I think he's right. Just listen this few sentences and wait till the end. This love of Christ, he says, becomes real to us, not just something we're, we uh, assent to on paper, but vivid to us. We are, according to the Bible, filled with all the fullness of God here in Ephesians 3.19. With the possible exception of Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, then he quotes that, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and you have been filled in him. He says, with the possible exception of that parallel verse, then this phrase. This is, to me, the most astonishing claim in the Bible, end quote. And and that's where I said, come on, who says that? Then I began to think, what is a more astonishing claim than we can be full of the fullness of God? What does this mean to be full of the fullness of God? Well, there's a progression here. You've got to get, you got to get in, the, in the flow of it. The inner strength of the Holy Spirit is in the heart. That's what Paul prays for, the enablement, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That recognizes the indwelling, permanent abiding presence of Christ, that he would dwell in our hearts through faith, which leads to an understanding of Christ's love, better and better comprehending and knowing, which leads us to God's fullness in us. You cannot separate this phrase from the rest of it. Listen, this is incredible. Perception of Christ's love to us and for us fills us with God's fullness. Which means to be satisfied with God. We're full. We're satisfied. We don't need anything else than God. Max Anders writes this. We all want to be filled up to the fullness of God. The only way it will happen, though, is if we pursue Him. If we pray for Him to strengthen us with power by His Spirit in the inner man, Christ will be at home in each room of our heart. If Christ occupies the heart, we will have a confidence and security in His love for us. If we have such confidence and security, we are able then to love others. This ability to know God and to know God's love Thus leads us to love others, leads us to the fullness of God in us, His presence, His power, His love, His life inhabit us, and we participate fully in His kingdom on earth. That's what Paul prayed for you, end quote. So I think being filled up with all the fullness of God means that you have nowhere else to look for fullness. It's satisfaction. And that satisfaction is gained by growth in understanding, that's comprehending and knowing, the love of Christ. So to grow in spiritual maturity, we must build our lives on love and have God's power to lay hold of 
Christ's love that is unknowable, but we can know by comprehending and knowing. It's wonderful. Why is this important? Why, why, why does he pray for this? It's important to remember that this is not the only thing Paul ever wrote on the love of Christ. And he knew, he knew that some of you, some of us would struggle with this. You may be struggling today. You may wonder, you know, it's that famous junior high devotional book, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? You know, you may wonder, if God loves me, why am I not, you know, swimming in joy today? He knew you would ask that. So this is what he says. Romans 8, 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, trials, no. Will distress, no. Will persecution or famine, no, no. Nakedness, not having, no. Peril, no. Sword, war, no. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but... In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He says, I'm convinced. He tells us to be comprehenders and knowers of something he's already convinced of. This is where he's convinced of. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, seems like a lot, nor angels, nor principalities, supernatural beings, things present, nor things to come, past, present, nor powers, nor future. Listen to this, nor height, nor depth. Does that sound familiar? Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, weary and beleaguered saint who may be sitting there wondering, if Christ loves me, then why? And you fill in the blank. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from his love. He still loves us. Three quick takeaways. These takeaways are typically, after I finish the sermon, I just pray about what, what was the fast pitch the Lord had for me. Number one, remember your unloveliness. If we think that we're lovable, we'll never really be overwhelmed by the fact that Christ loved us. If we're not, we don't have our, our sin in mind, if we don't understand the distance that it created, remember your unloveliness. I believe his love is best perceived with the recognition and conclusion that we are unlovely. Secondly, Become a lifelong student of Christ's love, which says, know and understand the gospel and the cross. He gave himself. That's his love. He gave himself. Listen to Paul's own testimony. L listen carefully. I know you know this. Listen carefully in the context of what he said about love. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We know that well, right? And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. He, Paul himself says, I am continually motivated by the reflection upon and remembrance of Christ giving himself for me. Third, rally your friends to explore Christ's love together. With all the saints, he said, rally your friends to explore Christ's love with each other together. Oh, what a difference our body would, would, would experience if we got together and had conversations where we just said, just tell me, what about Christ's love have you learned or has encouraged you today, this week, this month? That that was the curriculum of our conversations is loving and knowing the love of Christ. So, full disclosure, I am praying for our church here on Mission Road that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you would be rooted and grounded in love and that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints along with each other what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses mere knowledge that you would be satisfied or filled up to all the fullness of God. And I know what you're asking. Okay, well, how does that work? That's next week. But it's in verses 20 and 21 if you want to look ahead because it's all based on his willingness and his ability to answer our prayers. We just got to pray it. We have to be those active in praying to know Christ's love better. So Lord, help us to comprehend and know the love of your son for us. With each other alongside the saints, to be satisfied with your fullness with us, in us, among us, for us, and to us. In Jesus' name, amen.